and we'll read a few verses around that uh, point in the chapter from verse 24. Colossians 1 at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is, the church, which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden from, for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's really significant to note during, during the early centuries of the New Testament church, how some of the great statements of faith were in response to heresy. If you take the creeds of the church, for example, back in the first few centuries, such as the Nicene Creed in 325, where the church council came to formulate that great creed, along with others that you find in these early centuries, what you'll find is that they were in response to particular heresies, heresies of the time, whether it was to do with the Trinity or with the person of Christ or with the Holy Spirit. The response was that um, the church at the time, would, uh, they came together in these councils and formulated these great statements of theology, of faith, to form the creeds that we have uh, since then. And, of course, that led on in later years to statements such as confessions of faith that you have in the Westminster Confession of Faith and other confessions of faith that came to be formulated as statements of the, or a summary of the truth of Scripture itself in a, in a more comprehensive way than the early creeds did. And you find the same thing in Paul's letters as well, because what we're looking at this evening um, uh, as part of the letter to the Colossians is something that is Paul's response to the heresy or the false teaching that was current in his own day, because he was here uh, encouraging or assuring the Colossians as they faced that false teaching, uh, especially when they were facing the kind of ideas that taught that there were upper levels of Christian experience that they as Christians in Colossae had not yet reached, and that they would have to go through various... Uh, uh, various degrees of advancement using certain rituals or whatever in order to come to a, a more full and comprehensive understanding of the truth and of Christian experience as well. <coughs> so of course, that's been something the church has faced <coughs> down through the years since then as well. And what Paul is doing, uh, knowing that these false teachers could very easily discourage and perplex and cause Christians in the church in Corinth and Colossae, all these places to defect or to just become wearied in the faith or be uh, so perplexed with the false teaching that they would begin to fall in with what was taught there. Paul is emphasizing, especially in Colossians here, two things that are really important for ourselves. They're not going to be our two headings for the sermon tonight, but there are two things that run right through the letter to the Colossians. The first is the completeness of Christ, how Christ is complete as the Savior of sinners through all that he has done, 
through his person and work, he is complete. There is nothing required other than Christ has done. There is nothing to be taken back from what Christ has done. He is absolutely complete in addressing the needs and providing for the needs of lost sinners like ourselves. And the second thing alongside of that is the completeness of believers in Christ. That's to say that when we are in Christ, we are complete or made complete by God. Not that there isn't still a stage of redemption to be experienced, uh, to be finalized in glory, but nevertheless, in terms of our acceptance with God, in terms of God treating us and regarding us as his people, we are complete in Christ. We don't need to work ourselves into any higher levels of acceptance with God. Everything is in Christ, and in Christ we are already complete as far as God is concerned. And that goes a great way towards countering the kind of false teaching that the Colossians faced, that the apostles faced, that you face in your own experience in this present day as well. Every time you meet with something that appears to be false teaching, different to what you find in the New Testament or in the Bible, ask yourself the question, is this presenting a complete Christ to me? Is this, is this teaching, does it entail the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as my Savior? And as well as that, ask, well, is this actually saying to me, I need something or need to be something other than what I am in Christ? Do I need to have something added to my identity in Christ as somebody that God has accepted and brought into uh, sonship by adoption and become part of his believing family? These are the two great issues that we always need to confront. And you'll always come to Paul's letters, especially, and you'll find the answer in the completeness of Christ and your completeness in Christ. So now he comes to assure these, uh, these uh, Christians in Colossae uh, that this, in fact, is what is already true of them. He says, I was made a minister of uh, this gospel according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, there's a whole lot of things woven together there, and there are so many things that you need to open up and would really uh, bear study just to have a couple of these phrases themselves opened up. But let's try and keep them together. He's talking here about this mystery, the mystery hidden for ages, the mystery of the riches of the glory of this mystery, how great it is among the Gentiles. He's obviously concerned that these Gentiles, these non-Hebrew Christians who in Colossae came to know the gospel and to know Jesus through the gospel, they're not in any way behind those of Israel, those of the Jewish people, who had come from a long history of God's revelation to them to actually come to now know Christ as the Messiah. But he's now saying these Colossian, uh, former uh, Colossian uh, uh, Gentiles, non-Jews, have exactly the same level of acceptance with God as the Jews did, as the Christian Jews did. And he talks here about this mystery. What does he mean by 
this mystery. It's the word Paul uses elsewhere as well. We use the word mystery nowadays in the ordinary sense of it uh, to indicate something that is unknowable. Oh, it's a mystery. You just can't understand it. Yeah, the word mystery has that meaning to it as we normally use it. But the word mystery in Paul's theology, in Paul's letters, the word mystery doesn't, doesn't mean something unknowable, but something that was unrevealed, but has now been revealed in Christ. And the mystery really essentially is God's saving purpose, God's plan of salvation, which incorporated the Gentiles. That's really so much an integral part of what Paul calls the mystery, the plan of God, that the Gentiles were always included in the plan. Though in the process of time, only after Christ and after the Holy Spirit had come into the church, only then were the Gentiles incorporated through the gospel but it was always within God's plan. That is the mystery. That is the uh, previously unknown, but now known and made known, revealed by God. In other words, Christ himself really is the center of that mystery, that now revealed plan of God. And you see, it's important that he says here he chose to make known to the saints the mystery hidden for ages but now revealed to his saints. When you go back <clears throat> to the Old Testament and look at the book of Jonah, a great question there. Why did Jonah run away from God's command to go to Nineveh and preach repentance to them? Why did he turn away, find a ship going in the opposite direction? <clears throat> why did he not obey that command of God there and then? Well, the answer to that really basically is that for Jonah at that time in God's revelation, way back in those times, Jonah could not get his head around the fact that these heathens in Nineveh were going to be part or could possibly be part of God's plan of salvation. How could they be? They were enemies of Israel. They weren't within the covenant that God made with Israel. How could it possibly be that he was being asked, that Jonah was being asked by this covenant God of Israel to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, these cruel heathen people, and preach repentance to them? But that's really the key to God's teaching of Jonah, that the likes of Ninevites, heathen people, Gentile people, were also part of God's great plan of salvation. And as it comes, as we come to Colossians, Paul is actually here saying it's to his saints that God has now revealed this. That's important. By saints, he doesn't mean, of course, as we've seen already different times, he doesn't mean perfect people. He doesn't mean unblemished Christians. He doesn't mean people who are just now at the point of going to glory and have been made perfect. By saints, he means those sanctified in Christ. Those who are in Christ, therefore set apart to be God's people in him. And God has made known to them this mystery hidden for ages, but now revealed to his saints. Why is he saying that? Because these false teachers are saying, you know, you're not yet amongst the elite. You haven't actually come to graduate 
into the kind of mysticism, the kind of mystical uh, understanding that we have of, uh, of what salvation is, of how we actually proceed into the knowledge of God. That's for a small elite group. You have to work your way towards that. You have to graduate into this small group. No, Paul is saying, don't listen to that, because every single Christian, everybody in Christ, all the saints of God, God has revealed this mystery to them. They're already incorporated into the, the uh, church of God in this life. And all those have the spirit of God, are the saints of God, they have this privilege. And then he moves on to speak about the mystery that's now revealed, but he now goes on to speak about the riches of the glory of this revealed mystery. And that's really adding another layer of teaching for us. Here he is, and he's saying God has already revealed this to his saints. There are people who were Gentiles, who did not belong to Israel, but now have the same privileges, and indeed now understand more fully than ever before the plan of God and how it involved Jew and Gentile alike. One church, one salvation, one God, one Savior. But what does he mean here by the glory of this mystery? He's not just saying he has revealed this mystery. And he's saying to them, God chose to make known among the Gentiles, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is the heart of this mystery, this revealed will and plan of God. But there are riches to that, riches of the glory of this mystery. There's a glory to this mystery. There's a glory to it because Christ is central to it, because it's the person of Jesus that stands absolutely foursquare uh, in the middle of all of this. Everything revolves around him. Everything's based upon him. <clears throat> but he's now saying, the riches of this glory is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Paul, as you know, more often than not uses um, to be in Christ is, is a more frequent phrase in his usage than for Christ to be in his people. To be in Christ is to be saved. But here he's talking about the other side of things, Christ in you. You go to the likes of Galatians, remember that wonderful passage where, where Paul deals similarly with Christ in you or Christ in him, Galatians 2 and, and verse 20, uh, where he says there through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, whatever else that means. It means that the life, the spiritual life that Paul possesses, that has come about through the knowledge of Christ, through Christ's blessing of him, is now Christ in him, is at the center of this spiritual life that he possesses. That's through everyone here tonight. And it's an amazing thing. It's an astounding thing in itself. You'll find that Paul uh, also prays, for example, to the Ephesians, um, for the Ephesians, rather, in chapter 3, verse 17 of, of um, the letter to the Ephesians. 
is uh, praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able uh, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. But you notice there he's saying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, this is what he's praying for, for these Ephesians. Same for the Colossians here. He's saying this is the mystery. This is the glory of this mystery. How great among the Gentiles is are the riches of this glory, which is Christ in you which is the greater privilege do you think that we should be found in christ or that christ should live in us well they're both i would think on the same level the one's impossible without the other isn't it you can't be in christ without through the holy spirit christ taking up residence in us in his heart, in each of his believing people, not just amongst his people as a gathered group or as a church. This is talking about Christ in us, Christ in each one of us, Christ actually occupying the life of his people, the soul of his people. That's the astounding truth that's set before us, similar to the way that uh, uh, Jesus himself taught in John 14, that the Father and himself would come and take up residence or make their abode with the person who believed in Christ, who kept his word. And that's one of the things I, for one, fail really so often even to think about properly, to dwell my mind upon properly, the great privilege that it is both to be found in Christ and to have Christ in us. To have Jesus occupying your own life as a place in which he dwells, as a home that he has made for himself. That's really what he's saying to these Colossians. You know, he's saying, don't feel in any way inferior to the false teachers. Don't feel inferior or as if something is absent from your life when they say you've not yet quite made it. However much you feel about yourself, how much you're still aware of your sins, how much you're aware of your failings, how much you're aware of how far you, you have to go as far as you can see in terms of your holiness of life. Paul is saying to you, think about this from the moment that you're in Christ, by faith, Christ in you is the hope of glory. His home is in your heart. You're not inferior. Any false teacher or any heretic that's out there that suggests you haven't yet made it, you're complete in him, and the complete Jesus is in you. It's so important to hang on to that against all that would tend to contradict it or want to contradict it in your own experience as well. And, you know, he's saying here the riches of the glory of this mystery. Well, this mystery, this plan of salvation has a glory to it. And the glory, of course, is Christ himself, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ himself is central to the glory of this salvation. Uh, it's something glorious and something in which glory has such a, a basic part. Uh, the, the Old Testament, you remember, had uh, its own uh, uh, presence of God above the mercy seat within the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the, in the sanctuary, in the, uh, in, in the temple then afterwards. And uh, 
the privilege was given to the high priest alone to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. The folks on the outside couldn't see the cloud, the Shekinah cloud, the glory cloud above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. They knew it was there. They were meant to value that presence as the very indication of God being amongst them. God in you, you might say in the Old Testament, the hope of glory, the hope anticipating the coming of the Lord. Well, here it is. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the one who came and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, as John said, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the glory. That's the glory centrally in the New Testament church. That's the glory centrally in the plan and the scheme of God's salvation. But you see, it's in you. It is in you. This Christ is in you. And as Christ is in you, so in you is the hope of glory. And I think Paul is counteracting um, an idea that may have been, uh, we can't be sure exactly what the form of this false teaching was, but it looks as if there was some kind of perfectionism about it, that they had already made it. And we're saying to these genuine Christians in Colossae, you, you really haven't quite made it yet. You're not like us. Um, but Paul is saying, well, it's not yet glory for those who are in Christ. Yes, they are complete in him, they're accepted in him, but it's not yet glory for them. Glory is still to come, and it doesn't belong to this world. It belongs to the state of glory, to the next world, to heaven. And Paul is saying, the hope of that, the hope of glory, is Christ in you. And the Christ in you is the one in whom all the riches of God's salvation already dwell. And he's in you, is in your heart, is in your soul. You have him. He resides there. No one can take him from you. How rich are Christians? How rich is your very special salvation? How rich are you in Christ? Well, you are as rich as Paul is saying here, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not yet possession of glory, but it very much is a promise of it that's secure. Because as Christ is already in the hearts of his people, so that itself is the guarantee that his people will yet be fully with him glorified together with him. But you see, thirdly, I want to just uh, mention this before we finish. It's not just the mystery that's now revealed that had been hidden. And it's not just the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He also talks about this glory being presently active in our present sufferings. Because all the way through here in this epistle he talks about the sufferings that are being endured by those Christians in Colossae and it's important that that hope that we possess the hope of glory Christ in us is active now in this world in which we face tribulations and it's right to say that um, the sufferings of God's people of the saints of God 
are unique. Now, that doesn't mean that other people don't go through the same kind of sufferings. But it does mean no other people have these sufferings given such a place in their experience as God gives to them because he uses them towards their final glory. And that's not true of anyone that isn't a saint in Christ and a saved sinner in Christ. And that's why Paul is saying that he's rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake um, in verse 24. Uh, we already saw in Philippians, for example, how Paul can rejoice uh, even in prison as he's writing to the Philippians. You have the same here in, Coloss in, the, in the epistle to the Colossians as well. How can he say he's rejoicing? What does rejoicing mean in those circumstances? Well, it does mean an element of gladness or happiness, if you like, but you must never leave it at that level because when Paul uses this word rejoicing as he is here, there is built into it an element of confidence, an element of a sense of security in Christ, if you like. I rejoice in my suffering for you, sick. He's able to say, I have a sense of security through these sufferings because they're part of the sufferings of God's people. And as I belong to that group of God's people, I understand he's saying that my sufferings and your sufferings are not different in many respects to what God's people have always gone through. And you see this amazing phrase he's using, I rejoice in my sufferings, I have confidence in my sufferings, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, how can he say, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What is lacking in Christ's affliction? How can he mean something is lacking when he's talking about the afflictions, the suffering of Jesus himself? <coughs> well, you see, he's saying here, he's taking Christ and the church to be one entity, his body. He's the head his people are his body spiritually. And what he's saying here is that that one entity, that one uh, body and uh, head together have, if you like, a totality of suffering allocated to them over the course of time. In other words, you can't take the sufferings of Christ out of the sufferings of his people altogether. Neither can you take the suffering of his people as detached from the sufferings of Jesus. So what he's saying is there are still some afflictions and will be to the end of time that will be added to what the church, along with Christ the head, has already suffered and experienced. And when that totality is complete, the sufferings of Christ and his people together, the sufferings of uh, these, what is lacking in Christ's affliction, that is to say the church will be complete. In other words, Paul is using the word Christ really essentially for the church itself as connected to Jesus. And all through the course of time, there are certain afflictions that belong to the church as united to Christ, joined to his afflictions as well. And Paul is saying, that's why I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, 
because I recognize this is what the sufferings belong to. This is the entity that these sufferings are part of. And therefore I can say that I rejoice in them, that I'm confident that they belong to the saved people of God. So there's the mystery. It's been revealed. We know what it is. It is that the Gentiles, along with Jews, make up the church of God. It's not the church of the Jews and the church of the Gentiles. It's God's church of Jew and Gentile together. Ephesians 2 has that even more uh, graphically portrayed. But the riches of the glory of this mystery, the wonderful riches that belong to being in Christ, to being the people of God, and how that is experienced presently in our present sufferings, and through them we come to rejoice, to have confidence that as far as God is concerned and what God is doing, it's all part of his great plan of redemption. God bless these thoughts on his word. Now let's uh, conclude this evening. We're singing.